Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are teaching through 1 Corinthians. We've been working through this book for um, a few months here, and uh, we find ourselves this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn there, and uh, we're going to read all the verses again just to set them before us. We're looking at verses... um, a section of this this morning, and we'll look at uh, read all the verses of chapter 8, so 1 Corinthians 8, and just follow along with me as I read them to uh, set them before our hearts this morning. Paul writes, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the things, the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now this morning, uh, we begin again in chapter 8, and we see that Paul is um, all the way through chapters 8, 9, and 10 is taking up this whole issue of meat sacrificed to idols. And we set a little bit of the context last week. We, we set the scene by drawing attention to the, what the occasion was that, that uh, led to this discussion. This city, Corinth, was, Ro- was a Roman city that was neck deep in idolatry in idol worship. And in order to appreciate what that would have been like for them, we, we pointed out that there were a number of challenging um, factors, complicating factors that affected the church in this time. And we noted there a couple of things. One, we noted that it was common social practice at that time to have meals in a temple or in some place that was associated with an idol. Um, you know, you and I go out to a restaurant to get food served to us And that day, many of them would have gone to a temple, and there were areas around temples for exactly that purpose, to eat the meat, which, of course, would have been processed through those temples. The time when people got together socially and even privately were often times when a sacrifice would have been offered to a pagan deity. So public festivals, private special occasions, those kinds of things Um, were all opportunities for uh, people to offer up sacrifices to an idol, and that involved usually a shared meal together. So to cut yourself off from that would be to cut yourself off, essentially, from all social or most social interaction with unbelieving family, friends, and neighbors. 
So that's a, that was the first kind of complicating issue. The second, we said, was that most meat sold in the marketplace at this time had been processed through a temple and therefore um, had some connection to false Worship. The priests typically sold whatever meat couldn't be used in the offering of the sacrifice or consumed by the offerer and the priests themselves. And so most of what was for sale had some connection to idol worship. Now, those are the kind of external factors, but to complicate things even further, as Paul writes, we learn that there were two groups of people in the church two factions of believers who looked at this whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols with totally different perspectives. Uh, they had diametrically opposed views. One group uh, said, listen, meat is meat. It's just meat. And Jesus taught that it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. So what difference does it make where the meat comes from and whether or not we consume it? That was kind of one group's argument. The, at the same time, there was another group of believers in the church who had consciously decided to make a break with any and all things related to the meat offered to idols. If they were Jewish, this would have been a natural extension of their uh, rejection of false worship and idolatry. But many of the church here are Gentile, and they may have wanted to stay as far away as possible from anything that would have smacked a false worship or their previous life. And so that their temptation to uh, turn back to those things by engaging in uh, a meal offered in a temple was uh, something that they found wrong and blasphemous. And so they wanted to be as far away from that as possible. So in the second group, whether you're Jew or Gentile, contact with idolatry, such as they were familiar with it in their previous life, would have been very, very hard for them to deal with. It was weighed heavy on their conscience to partake of meat offered to idols, caused a feelings of guilt, and they wanted no part of it. So what you have now in the church are two groups of believers in the same body with totally different views of this whole issue, and it was driving a wedge between the church. So what you have here are... Um, Paul is Paul stepping in and offering up his counsel. What is it that they are to do with this? They've written to him on this issue. They've explained what's going on and even what they think. And now Paul is writing back to them, giving him his pastoral and apostolic counsel. And, um, and so verses 1 to 3, which we looked at last Sunday, are a little bit of an aside. And then as we pick up the text in verse 4, Paul resumes his main argument down through the end of the chapter. And what we saw last Sunday in verses 1 to 3, which is, which is the subject of our study, was that Paul is bringing the church a gentle, but a correction nonetheless, a gentle correction. And um, they had grown prideful. They had gotten tall, if you will. In, uh, and so Paul pulls down their pride in hopes of showing them, and, and not only them, but us as well, that love, not simply knowledge, is what governs or grounds Christian conduct. Love, not simply knowledge, grounds Christian conduct. conduct. Now, we may not see that at first glance, but this very specific issue that largely affected the Corinthians in, first, in the first century sets before the whole church in all places and all times a profound spiritual truth that we desperately need to hear as we relate to each other in the body of Christ. And that is that love 
not knowledge, is the ground of Christian conduct. Love, not simply knowledge, is the grounds, the foundation of Christian conduct. And I don't think it's a coincidence that everywhere you look in the New Testament, the apostles are constantly commanding the church to love one another. It's all over the New Testament. to be there, And, and by love one another... Uh, scripture defines what he means by what we mean by love. It is to, as we just heard, to be patient, to be kind with one another, to not brag or be arrogant toward one another, to not act unbecomingly toward one another, to not keep an accounting of wrongs suffered, to not uh, rejoice in unrighteousness, or to uh, and excuse me, to not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rather to rejoice with the truth. It is not to be provoked. It, love does, bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things as we relate to one another in the church. And that's very practical. That's a very tangible expression of love. Love is, I don't think it's overstating the case, is a spiritual thread that must be woven through the church to bind the church together, to be edified, to see the church built up. And the breadth of love as it relates to the church is all over. Love is the heart of unity in the scriptures. The New Testament, Ephesians 4 verse 2 says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. So there's this connection between unity in the church body and love. Love is also the antidote to fear and anxiety. Paul, I mean, excuse me, the Apostle John says in his epistle, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. Love also cuts down a judgmental spirit. Taking up this same issue with the Roman church in Romans 14, Paul says, if because of food your brother is hurt, you are not walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. And love, we said, is the debt we owe to every other person in this world. Romans 13, verse 7 and 8, morally verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Spirit-fueled, Christ-like love in the church is essential. Otherwise, the church will eventually tear itself apart. Love is the tie that binds. Knowledge is not enough to build up a church. Knowledge, when it lacks this essential ingredient of love, Paul says, simply puffs up. And that's what we learned last Sunday. Knowledge, though, when it's united to love, builds up. It edifies. And what Paul pointed out last time is that the Corinthians had a wrong view of knowledge, and they were using that knowledge to affect, essentially affect one another. In verse 1, he says, we all have knowledge. That's what they were saying. Knowledge, though, he says, makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge that's simply preoccupied with nothing more than accumulating more biblical data. Knowledge that's consumed with protecting our sterile correctness in our theology, that only leads to pride and destroys others. Love doesn't arrogantly drag other Christians over the guardrails of their conscience. 
Love is humble and recognizes that any and all knowledge we do have is incomplete at best and only given to us by the gracious hand of God. He says, if anyone supposes he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Humble Christians who are walking in love are more concerned about building up one another in the church than they are about having things their own way. And so as we look at this, you can begin to see how the cultural issue itself is just the occasion for which the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is going to teach us that, that love, not simply knowledge, grounds Christian conduct. This is the truth he's trying to engrave on our hearts. Now, the last Sunday we saw in verses 1 to 3, the church's gentle correction This morning, I want us to see in verses 4 to 6, the church's common confession. The church's common confession. Paul picks up his argument again in verse 4, and what what we see him say here is this, Therefore, back to what I was saying, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Paul picks up here in verses 4 to 6 where he left off from his aside in verse 1. And we're able, just by reading the text, to infer with a high degree of confidence the argument that this knowledge group, this this group of people who, who felt like it was fair game to eat meat sacrificed to an idol in an idol's temple, this, this knowledge group, he, he, he summarizes what they are saying in verse 4. Their argument, among other things, went something like this. They said in verse 1, we all have knowledge. Paul quotes them. Here in verse 4, he again quotes them. We know that an idol doesn't really exist. That's what they're saying. That they're nothing. There's only one true and living God. So dining in an idol's temple is no big deal. And Paul's quoting them. The the original language uh, doesn't have quotation marks. There's no no quotation marks in Greek. Um, But there are ways to... The grammar can mark out a quotation. And that is what we see here in verse 4. We, we, there is a, he is quoting them, and we do the same thing in English. If I were to ask you the question, what advice did he give you? What advice did so-and-so give you? You would say, he said that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, or something like that, right? The that indicates a quotation of something that someone else said. If I asked you, what does Paul write in verse 2? You would respond, he wrote, that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The that marks out a quotation of something Paul taught. It's the same here in verse 4. He says, we know that, and then he quotes them, that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. This was their argument. This was their response to him about the issue. Their argument then was based on this reality that idols don't have any real existence, that there's only one true and living God, that an idol is nothing. And on the face of it, that's a true statement. 
That is absolutely a biblical statement. Absolutely is. God is one. But, and, 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 and not only that, it can, be, it can be supported from Scripture. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, that text is known as the Shema. It's just the Hebrew word for hear. And he's, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, the, Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That is, a, that is such an important statement. Every Jew would have learned this. Every Jew would have confessed this with their mouths. If there is one defining statement of monotheism in contrast to the polytheism of the nations, this is it. Deuteronomy 6.4. And absolutely, Paul is and the, and the Corinthians are looking to that. Uh, but not only in, in Deuteronomy, but if you look at Psalm 115, again, the psalmist makes clear that an idol is, is nothing. Verse 3 of Psalm 115, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, the idols do, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. That is a true statement. God is one, and an idol is nothing. On paper, the Corinthians were orthodox. There is no reality to Isis or Serapis or Asclepius or any other idol that would have been known to them in that time. They did not exist. There is no God but Yahweh. The idols of the nations were merely blocks of wood and stone, the works of man's hands. And so the knowledge group saying, listen, how can we be faulted for eating in an idol's temple and eat meat sacrificed to such and such idol when those things are non-gods? They don't even exist. They're not real. And that's a fair argument. That is a fair argument. It's a biblical argument from the scriptures. It's the kind of argument someone who knows their Bible would make with force and with confidence. But as we're going to see in a minute, Paul's going to use the force of their argument against them. Uh, I'm not a martial artist, but I do know a little bit about martial arts. Judo, if you're familiar with judo, judo emphasizes winning in combat by using your opponent's weight against them. Uh, and their strength is becomes their weakness. The goal of judo is to preserve your own mental and physical energy. It embodies this principle that good technique and wisdom can win out over sheer strength. That's kind of the premise. In a judo match, a smaller, weaker person can overcome a heavier, stronger opponent because there are no kicks and no punches. And in fact, one of the main tenets of judo is minimum effort with maximum efficiency, which quite frankly, I think that's a good motto for just about anything in life. Instead of resisting force, you use, you use that force to your advantage by going with it and adding your own strength. When someone shoves you in a judo match, that person's suddenly off balance, and now they're vulnerable, and you can throw them or you can pull them down. And that is essentially what Paul's doing in this text. 
He is there. They were using their knowledge of the scriptures in a heavy and forceful way. They were the bigger, the stronger, the uh, you know believer, if you will, coming at the weak. And Paul is about to use their own argument against them. Notice what he, what he says in verses five and six. For this is explanatory. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Paul says, yeah, I agree with you. I I agree. There is no God but the one true God. And even if there are so-called gods worshipped by unbelievers here, there, and everywhere, that's what he means by on heaven and earth, Yet for us, as Christians, there is only one God. We know that. We know that. And at this point, as the Corinthians are reading Paul's response, they're probably looking around saying, okay, <laughs> I guess we're all on the same page. You know? But what I want you to notice is how Paul uses their knowledge against them in verse 6. He says, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This text has a confessional ring to it. It has a, it has a creedal ring to it. That doesn't just seem like something Paul alone has said, but something that many Christians might have said as a concise summary of biblical truth. It definitely reflects the language of other portions of the New Testament. It clearly reflects the language of Deuteronomy. We saw that in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And so it seems to be, and many commentators agree to this, that some kind of confessional statement that was known, adhered to, and even repeated amongst Christ's churches, a faithful summary of biblical doctrine, a form or pattern of sound words is what is in view here in verse 6. It is something to be held on to and affirmed by all God's people. And Paul says, the one God whom you and me and even your weaker brothers and sisters worship as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, I don't see the Holy Spirit there. Well, hold on. He gets there in chapters 12, 13, and 14. So we know that he's, he has this in view. But he, he says, He says, the one God whom we worship as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he stands in singular contrast to all other so-called gods who don't exist. And this confession of our faith expresses two important realities about God that we hold together in common. If you look at verse 6, we see first that the triune God is the creator of all things. That's what that statement says. But one God, there is but one God, who is he? The Father, from whom are all things. So God is the creator of all things. And of course, we see the Father is the one through whom all things are created. Genesis 1, we know well. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Rome, uh, Revelation 4, verse 11 Revelation 4 is a, is a is a scene in heaven, and it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. 
So the Father is the one from whom are all things, but so is the Son, John 1, John chapter 1, verse 3. We, again, John writes, All things came into being through the Word, and apart from the Word, nothing came into being that has come into being. Or in Colossians 1, in verse 15 and 16, God, the Lord, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or in authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And the Holy Spirit is also involved in creation. If you look back at Genesis 1, verse 2, it says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work as they always do inseparably to create all that exists. This is a statement of our faith. The triune God is the creator of all things. But there's a second truth that is is given to us here. And that is that the triune God is the end or the ultimate purpose of all things. The Father and Son and Holy Spirit aren't just the source of everything. They are the goal or the purpose of everything. Romans 11, verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Or like we see in both the beginning and end of Revelation, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the triune God is the source of all things. And this confessional statement here in verse 6 shows that the triune God is the ultimate purpose of all things in our lives. And that is summarized in this simple statement of faith. As God's children, by faith, every one of us has confessed this to be true. When you bowed the knee to Christ, when you came to him... Romans 10, 9 says, you believed in your heart that God the Father raised God the Son, Jesus Christ, from the grave, having made atonement for sins at the cross, and you confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And that brought you into a living, vibrant, and never-ending relationship with God. And all that, all that was affected by the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll see it later in chapter 12, verse 3. But Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God, except by the Holy Spirit. So this, this is the church's common confession. It, verse 10 of Romans says, for, uh, 10, verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. A Mormon doesn't confess this. A Hindu doesn't confess this. A Buddhist doesn't confess this. Only a hopeless sinner responding to the good news of the gospel can and will throw themselves at the mercy and grace of God made available only through Jesus Christ. These two sentences in verse 6 wrap their arms around the whole of our Christian existence. And if you have not made that confession, God is not your father. And Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit cannot be in you. 
It doesn't matter what your familiarity with the Bible is or, or what, your, what your understanding of the church is or whether you're a morally upstanding person who tries to do good to others. Nothing will rescue you from the wrath to come but placing your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. The one God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the beginning and the end of all things. He created everything and he has redeemed his children for himself. And so the good news of the gospel is come to him. Come to him and he will not cast you out. The scripture says, Jesus says, I am lowly. It doesn't matter how the past has stained your soul, Christ's blood can wash you clean. Here's where Paul's going with all this. Our common confession is a reminder that what binds the church together isn't something external and superficial, whether we eat meat or not, whether we watch certain media or not, whether we do X or Y or not. What binds the church together are the eternal truths we hold together in common. Unity around eternal truth is the only unity that is real and valuable. Unity around common behavior, unity around common ethnicity, unity around a common political interest is superficial, it's tribal, it's fickle. It cannot withstand the stresses and the strains, the comings, the goings, the risings and the fallings of this ever-changing sin-cursed world. It cannot sustain it. The unbelieving world rallies around whatever is most immediate, whatever most naturally binds their hearts together in a given setting. But for Christians, what binds us together has been forever and unalterably determined for us. We don't have the freedom to pick and choose those things for ourselves. You have been bought with a price. Paul said it just a just few verses before in chapter 7, verse 23, and previously in chapter 6, verse 20. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. I am not my own. So then, while we have opportunity, Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good to all people and especially to those of the household of faith. This is Paul's point. Our life, inextricably bound up in the triune God, dictates how we live and for whom we live as Christians. The Corinthians, they were lunging at their weaker brothers and sisters and using their knowledge of God's oneness to justify doing what they wanted individually. They were callous to how it affected their other brothers and sisters in the church. And Paul uses their own weight against them, showing them that actually their knowledge of the triune God, as summarized in this common confession, demands the opposite, the exact opposite. Pagans might chop up the world into uh, so-called gods and goddesses and have their own, all have their own sphere, which are nothing. But the one God, Paul says, is responsible for all things, and we as Christians come from him and we live for him in everything. He is our origin and he is our goal. For the Christian, then, theology, our theology grounds our ethical behavior. Who we are before God and in Christ, that's what is the foundation of all 
our behavior as Christians. Said another way, sound doctrine is the foundation of sound living. That's what we've been doing in Equipping Hour for the last you know, umpteen years is teaching sound doctrine that, it, that would ultimately lead to sound living. And so this common confession becomes a reminder. I mean, there's a reason Paul says this. It becomes a reminder to have that perspective. So I just want to summarize. Let me just give you a few summary implications by way of review. And then it will set the stage for the application, which we'll see last, next week in 7 to 13. I really wanted to get to 7 to 13 this week, but I just couldn't. Because <laughs> it's, it's got a lot on its own. But let me just give you four kind of summary implications, some takeaways. First, and this is part of this is review from last Sunday. Christian conduct is not based simply on our knowledge, but on love. Christian conduct is not based simply on knowledge, but on love. True knowledge consists in having sound doctrine and knowing how to rightly apply sound doctrine so as to live in love toward all and build them up. Love is preoccupied with building up the church. It doesn't mean that knowledge isn't necessary. It is absolutely necessary, but knowledge alone is not enough. It cannot serve as the primary basis of Christian conduct. Second, just because someone uses the Bible to justify doing this or that action doesn't make it right. Just because someone uses the the Scriptures to justify doing this or that action, that doesn't necessarily make their position right. That's obviously true with false teachers. False teachers, they use the Bible all kinds of wrong ways to prove and to justify all kinds of questionable and downright sinful actions. But it's not just false teachers. Sometimes believers do the same thing. The last several years, has provided far too many examples of Bible-teaching pastors cherry-picking and twisting the scriptures to defend their actions or inactions, interpretations and applications of texts that have been mutually agreed upon by the church for centuries, suddenly and without any cognitive dissonance whatsoever, they've been twisted to mean the opposite of what God's people through the ages have known them to mean and even what is implied by them, the application. And that's what was happening in Corinth. Just as the Corinthian church appealed to the orthodox truth that God is one to justify doing what they wanted, so we are all prone to using the scriptures to proof text our choices, our desires, our selfish wants. We have to guard against that. Thirdly, whenever someone uses the scripture to claim or to uh, assert their right to do X or Y, irrespective of how that impacts other Christians, you can be sure they're grounding their behavior simply on knowledge and not love. Say that again. Whenever someone uses the scripture to assert their right to do personally, do X or Y, irrespective of how that impacts other Christians, you can be sure they are grounding their behavior on knowledge and not Christ-like love. Here's a helpful diagnostic question you can ask yourself in those kind of gray area things. Will my action in this situation or that situation, will it build others up or 
Will it simply satisfy my personal expectations or desires? And uh, how you answer that question should determine how you move forward. If it doesn't build up, then you probably don't need to be doing it. And I would reiterate that, just to clarify what I mean by build up, it does not mean, as I said earlier, dragging people's over the fence of their conscience again and again and again until it's seared. That is not what, and that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, listen, the best way to help these people learn is to do it, kind of like get them in the know. And that's actually sin. That is leading your brother into sin. Romans 14, Paul says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats meaning against his conscience, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So, so Paul's point is that it doesn't edify your brother or sister in Christ to assault their conscience over and over and over again. And that's why he goes on to say one verse later in Romans 15, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So when we hear that kind of verbiage or those kinds of arguments being put forward, we can be confident that they're not arguments based on love, for choosing to do X or Y, their arguments based simply on knowledge. Lastly, we cannot drive a wedge between what we do and whom we do it for. We cannot drive an artificial wedge between what we do and whom we do it for, or between creation and redemption. Everything is from God. Everything is for God. Everything is to God in our lives. All that we do, we do with an eye toward the triune God. It is for him and for the glory of his name. If you fast forward even just a couple pages over in 1 Corinthians 10, as Paul finishes this discussion, which really is three chapters on this whole issue, he ends in verse 31 to 33. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. So if there's any confusion, if we have to follow Paul's example, we must. So these, these, are the, these are the truths that are contained in here. We, we need to understand this. Our common confession is what drives how we live and how we operate and how we relate to one another in the church. God is all. He is over all. He is in all and everything is for him. So we do all for him and for the benefit of others. That's our heart. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you that we have this common confession that binds our hearts together to the truth. We thank you that, that you are indeed the sovereign of all. You are over all. You are uh, working all things, the scripture says, together for good to those who love you. And so even in the midst of all that's happening in our world and in our lives, we can be confident that you, you are driving and directing all our steps according to your sovereign purposes. Lord, help us to have this perspective not to be selfish and not to be prideful and not to use the Bible as a, as a club to beat down others to see things our way, but as a tool to equip and to edify and to build up your church so that we would walk in the truth and that, as Paul says, we would see others saved, sanctified, and ultimately glorified. Lord, if there's any here this morning without Christ, we pray that you would draw their hearts to you, that they would make that confession that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, Visit us online at CascadesBibleChurch.com.